Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Take your Bibles, turn over to 1 John chapter 3. We are continuing our series on the 11 tests of saving faith. 11 tests of saving faith. God commands us over in 2 Corinthians that we are to test ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. That is a command. We need to test ourselves because it is possible for a person to claim to be a Christian, to have been baptized, said a sinner's prayer, joined a church, and that person still not be a Christian. Now, we have said that our salvation is based on faith and grace. And we have a slide up there to show you that. Salvation is based on faith because of God's grace. As the Scripture says, by grace are we saved through faith, that not of yourselves, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. But when it comes to the assurance of your salvation, how you can know that you are saved, that is based on faith and a changed life. If your life is not changed, then you have no assurance at all that you are truly a Christian. And so we're looking at 11 tests of saving faith. The first test that we saw is that you desire to walk in the light in fellowship with God. That is a desire of your life, to walk in the truth. Secondly, we saw that you have a desire to be obedient to God's commands and to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. You desire to obey the Word of God. You desire to surrender to Jesus as a King and Lord of your life. And then thirdly, a person pursues and realizes a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. God is not simply a concept, but He is a person. Jesus is not simply a historical figure, but to the true Christian, He is a constant friend, a faithful companion, one that you know personally. And today we come to test number four. There is a consistent struggle for victory over personal sin and temptation. And we're in 1 John chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 6, and I'll ask you to stand in respect for the Word of God. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, 
Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You may be seated. A true Christian will experience a consistent struggle for victory over sin and temptation. Why is there a struggle in the Christian life constantly, consistently over sin and temptation? Well, there are two reasons. Number one is found in Colossians 1.13. And that is that we were once a part of Satan's domain of darkness. As Colossians 1.13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Some people mistakenly think that once a person becomes a Christian, they no longer sin. I've heard people say, well, that church is just full of sinners. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're far from perfect. But some mistaken notion is that once a person becomes a Christian, that suddenly they cease to sin. Well, I might add, that person doesn't know many Christians at all, does he? Not closely. No, we still struggle. And we struggle, first of all, because we came out of Satan's domain of darkness. That means he knows you. He knows your name. His demons know you. They observed your life from the day you were born. They know your weaknesses. They know your natural tendencies. And they exploit those. They come to you at your point of weakness. They know you Achilles' heel, and they seek to attack you at that point. They have heard your conversations for years. They know you so well. And they are wise enough to take advantage of that knowledge with their temptations. And so there is a struggle because He knows you. And He has put a bullseye on your back. He cannot keep you from becoming a Christian, but once you become a Christian, He wants to keep you from being a glory to God, and He wants to take all the joy out of your salvation, and He even wants to discredit your life as a Christian. So expect that struggle. Secondly, there is a struggle because... Your flesh, and I don't mean your skin, but I mean that sin nature, that inclination towards sin that we're all born with, is at war with the Spirit of God who is in you. Galatians 5.17 speaks to this. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. They are at enmity. They are at war with one another so that you may not do the things that you please. 
Now, when we're born into this human race, we're born with this sin nature. And this sin nature, this inclination toward sin, this, this natural bent toward being selfish and being greedy and being prideful that we see in all children, continues to harass us. And when we become Christians, what God does is He breaks its power over us. You see, we no longer have to serve that master. But nevertheless, it's not extinct. It's not annihilated. It still occasionally, frequently even raises its ugly head. And those sinful desires and urges come back. Now, don't be confused by the bubble that many people experience when they first become a Christian. I've seen it over and over again. Particularly in a person who's older when they become a Christian. They become a Christian and all of a sudden... Man, they don't even want to sin at all. They don't even find any temptations. They might have had trouble with with alcohol or with drugs or something else. And all of a sudden, man, they get free. And they're excited. Oh, man, I don't even want Man, these temptations are gone. That's the honeymoon period. You have a honeymoon period in your Christian life, too. But then several months down the road, those sinful urges, those sinful demands, those sinful desires start creeping back up. And if a person's not careful, they'll think, well, 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 but but I guess I'm not a Christian. I mean, everything was so great and that I'm getting into the battle. What's this struggle I'm going through? Well, God just gave you a reprieve to let you enjoy your new life a bit before you had to get back in the battle. So, as a Christian, you can expect a struggle. A consistent struggle against sin and against temptation. And I might add, it has been my experience, the older I get, and I hope as I get older I'm becoming more spiritually mature, but the more spiritually mature I become, the struggles don't get less. They get more. When Paul wrote toward the end of his life, that he was the chief of sinners, he was not simply flipping his lips or bumping his gums. Somebody has once said, well, I think that was just false humility on Paul's side. No, I don't think so. I think the more Paul walked, the closer he came to Jesus, the more he saw the sin in his life. That's the way it is with me. I'm seeing things in my life I never saw before. I am being having to wrestle and fight more now than I did. There are different temptations. Now, older age presents different temptations than, than the passion of youth, but still, they're there. So don't think you're ever going to get to the point in your Christian maturity that you don't struggle, that you don't have and experience this civil war going on within you. If you ever cease to experience it, you better wake up. Because something's wrong. The only reason you're not struggling is because you're giving into it. You know, you don't struggle to go down the current. You struggle to swim against the current. So there will be that struggle. But next, the born-again Christian will also realize several things. First, he will realize that he has a new boss. He has a new master. 
He has a new king. He has a new Lord. Again, Colossians says, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, where? To the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now Jesus is your King. You no longer live for yourself. You no longer live for Satan. You now live for Jesus. You have a new Master, as Romans 6.18 says, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. we got a new Master. We are now to desire to obey the new Master, to be His slave. And a born-again believer recognizes this. Secondly, a true Christian desires to resist temptation and Satan. They don't want to fall into sin. They aren't just neutral towards sin. They hate sin. They abhor sin. They hate Satan. They do not want to have anything to do with him at all. They realize he is out to destroy them. As we see in verse 9, no one who's born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. As a believer, you have the seed of God in you, and I believe he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, the nature of the divine nature within you, and that divine nature will not let you practice sin. He won't do it. John Calvin said, any more than the darkness can stand before the noonday sun, can sin stand in the life of a believer before the presence of Jesus Christ. And if a person can practice sin, it's a sign Jesus is not in their life. They do not have the seed of God in them. They have not been born of God. And so a Christian will desire to resist temptation. That's the struggle. He resisted. He will also employ the spiritual weapons of his warfare. And John mentions three in this letter. First, Christ in us. First John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus, the ultimate overcomer, is in you. And because Christ is in you, He will enable you to overcome sin and temptation. You have the great overcomer indwelling you, empowering you, and enabling you to be an overcomer yourself. You're not alone when you face sin and temptation. You have Christ there, the overcomer. Next, there is the Word of God. In 1 John 2.14, Having written to you, fathers, because you know Him who's been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The Word of God is perhaps the most powerful weapon we have against sin and temptation. I say that because our own Lord Jesus, when faced with temptation, He reached in His spiritual arsenal and pulled out the Word of God. 
You remember when Satan tempted him, each of those three temptations, Jesus quoted Scripture. He says, it is written. There is no weapon as powerful as the Word of God. Because Satan deals in lies and deceit and darkness. And what is the Bible but truth and light? And the light of the Word will dispel the lies and the darkness of Satan. So when temptations come, go to the Word of God. Bring out the sword of the Word and use it as your weapon against sin and temptation. Next, faith in Christ. Again, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is a victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith enables you to be an overcomer. Why is that? Because when you're facing temptation, if you will apply faith in the power of Christ in you, guess what? You can overcome that temptation. When you by faith realize that all the resurrection power that brought Jesus alive from the dead resides in you, you can stand in His power against that temptation. When you're going through an awful situation and the enemy wants to discourage you, and might I add that one thing Satan desires to do as much as anything is to get you discouraged. He wants to get you down. He wants to get you into despair. He wants you to mope around as a Christian thinking, poor old me, things are so bad, things are so awful, I'm just no good, I'm a loser. He just wants you to get discouraged. Faith can give you the victory over that. Faith can raise you above your human circumstances. You see, faith enables you to look above your circumstances and look to God. Faith says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So faith says, I don't care what I'm going through, my God is going to work good in it. And He's going to use it to make me like Jesus. And so by faith you can overcome. The Bible talks about the shield of faith. That you can hide behind that door shield of faith. And it was the door shield because it was the size of a door. And the enemy will shoot his fiery darts, but they will hit that door shield of faith and they will be extinguished. He will throw his darts at you, but you just get back behind the Shield of faith. Oh, but God says. I don't care what you say, devil. God says. You say, I'm going to starve. You say, I lost my job and I'm undone. But I'm going to tell you, God says He'll supply all my needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I'm going to believe God. Get behind the shield of faith. So, not only does the born-again believer recognize his new master. Not only does he desire to resist temptation, but he also employs the spiritual weapons of his warfare. And that brings us to this question. Does a true born-again Christian ever knowingly, willingly 
sin. All right, let's look at our passage again. Verse 6. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Now, if we stop right there, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? (laughs) I mean, no one who abides in Him sins. Well, that means I don't abide because I sin. But praise God, we don't interpret the whole Scripture by one verse. Let's keep going. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Does a true born-again believer ever willfully, knowingly sin? Yes. I wish I could say no, but it's true that we do. But, a born again, true Christian will not practice sin. The key word there is practice. Yes, we do occasionally sin. And yes, even willfully sometimes and knowingly. But your lifestyle, your character must not be one of continually giving in to sin. One who's truly born of God cannot practice sin. Again, we see in verse 9, for no one who's born of God practices sin because the seed of God is in him and won't let him. I'm talking about a person who grew up in the church. Parents brought them from the time they were a baby. Got about 12, 13 they came down and made a profession of faith in Christ. Maybe it was during vacation Bible school, some other time. Got baptized. Got involved in the youth group. And then went off to college. Stopped going to church. Started getting an immoral lifestyle, sleeping around, going out and getting drunk. And had been in that lifestyle now for eight years or more. I go to that person and say, look. God says, no one who practices sin is born of God. What do you call this lifestyle you're going through? You have absolutely no assurance that you are ever born again. You say, but preacher, you can't look into anybody's heart. You're judging them. No, I'm not judging them. God's Word's judging them. God's Word says no one who practices sin is born of God. Anyone who can willfully, knowingly, continually, habitually sin without any regard for how it affects God or others is not born of God. It's that simple. It's what God says. I didn't say it. He says it. He says don't be deceived. That means you can be deceived. That means people are deceived. They think because they walked an aisle and said a sinner's prayer and got baptized and joined the church that they're saved. That they're born again. But their lifestyle says anything but that. And God says you're not saved. Because no one who practices sin is born of God. The one who practices sin in verse 8 is of the devil. And it alarms me 
How many people grow up in the church, go through those steps I talked about, only to go off to college and get into a lifestyle of sin with no regard for God? Yes, a born-again Christian will willingly, knowingly sin. But not without a realization of a failure in personal holiness and without a struggle against that sin and temptation. If you can willfully, knowingly sin without any struggle, without any conviction of the Holy Spirit, then you better seriously question your salvation. Now, I'm not talking about just feeling guilty because we all have a conscience whether we're Christian or not. Even a non-Christian may feel guilty. But it's the guilt of the world. It's that sorrow that the world has because you got caught. But a godly repentance is a sorrow that leads to a change of action. You realize I have fallen short in my pursuit for personal holiness. I realize I've sinned against God. And I don't want to do it. God, give me the grace not to do it again. And I want you to realize that though we as a Christian may actually willfully, knowingly sin, there are grave consequences to that. Grave consequences in this life. Now, God has forgiven us of all of our sins eternally. When you became a Christian, God wiped away every sin, not only that you committed in the past, but He actually went ahead and forgave you of every sin you're going to ever commit in the future. Now, lest you say, well, if that's the case, preacher, I'm going to go out there and sin it up. When that very attitude shows you're not born again. Right? You've heard me say, I sin all I want to, more than I want to. Well, I just want you to know, though, there are serious consequences when you as a Christian willfully, knowingly sin. And I want to share those consequences with you to help deter you when you're tempted. First, when we knowingly sin, we incur God's displeasure. I go back to David in the Old Testament when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, an outright sin. And we read in 2 Samuel 11:27, And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. When you sin, it displeases your God. You know what Paul said over in 2 Corinthians 5, 9? He says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. As a Christian, your desire is to please God. That's one of the deepest desires of your heart. 
just as a child, you want to please your parent growing up. As a child of God, we want to please Him. We don't want His displeasure. But that's exactly what you get when you willfully, knowingly sin. It displeases God. Next, it grieves the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We all agree that perhaps the greatest, deepest, most painful emotion in human life is grief. The loss of a very dear and loved person to us. I think it's interesting that God picks that very word, grief, to talk about what the Holy Spirit experiences when we knowingly, willfully sin. Grief. Do you realize that when you, as a child of God, willfully sin, that it hurts God? Do you realize that? The God of the universe. The God who created everything. The God who is seated on the throne in heaven is hurt. He experiences pain when you and I sin. Over in Psalm 78, listen to this. How often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him, again that word, in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Now, you as a parent know how much it pains you when your kids sin. Now, imagine how much our sin pains our Father in heaven. Now, to me, that's one of the greatest deterrents. You know, I'm not worried about eternity, and, 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 but man, to think that my sin causes pain, deep anguish to my heavenly Father, to my Lord Jesus who died for me. So not only incurs God's displeasure, but it grieves and pains Him when we sin. Next, it takes the joy out of our salvation. In Psalm 51, 8 and 12, again the psalmist writing after a time of sin, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you've broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. After David had sinned with Bathsheba, he lost the joy of his salvation. He said, restore it to me. You know the most miserable person in the world? Is a Christian in willful sin. Unbelievers don't get miserable about their sin. Sometimes the effects, but not in the sin. But a born-again Christian who realizes he has sinned against his God, that he has incurred the displeasure of God, has pained and hurt his God, will get absolutely miserable with the Spirit's conviction in their lives? You want to lose the joy of your salvation? Then you willfully sin. You knowingly sin and you'll lose all joy. You'll get absolutely miserable because you know you're not right with God. And you're letting your God down. Next, when we willfully sin, it brings dishonor to God. 
Again, speaking of David and his situation in 2 Samuel. However, because by his deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, this child also that's born to you shall surely die. Nathan said, you have given the enemies of God an opportunity to blaspheme God by your actions. And when you and I willfully, knowingly sin, it brings dishonor. It brings reproach on our God. Now, we're to live to His glory. But when we willfully sin, we're living to His dishonor. We're making people think less of Him, not more of Him. And then we bring temporal judgments into our life. You see, God forgives, but He doesn't remove consequences in this life. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, a passage we look at every time we have the Lord's Supper, talks about some of these temporal judgments that people bring into their life when they willfully, knowingly sin. He says in... 1 Corinthians 11:29 For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. They were going through physical sickness because of their willful sin. God has a manifold ways of bringing his discipline into our lives. And when you knowingly willfully sin, you release the discipline hand of God into your life. It might come through the loss of a job. It might come through some family issues. It might come through financial pressures. God is not limited in the ways He can bring His hand of discipline into your life. But I'll tell you this, every one of them will be sorrowful and it won't be pleasant. Hebrews 12:11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. You want a life of misery? You want a life of sorrow? Then willfully sin. Knowingly sin. God's a loving Father. If you can willfully sin and not see the disciplined hand of God in your life, then God says, you're illegitimate. You're not a true son. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. So when you knowingly, willfully sin, God in His love is going to discipline you in your life to bring you back. And then there is the sin unto death. The sin unto death. Over in 1 John 5.16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. You say, preacher, what is that sin? I want to know that sin. I don't want to do it. Well, i got news for you. There's no particular sin. It's any sin that you persistently continue in willfully, knowingly. When you willfully, knowingly sin, you're taking the first step on the road to the sin unto death. And that means an untimely death. Now, only God knows when you've reached that point that He says, okay, you're bringing more detriment to my kingdom than you're accomplishing. So here we go. And He takes you out. Paul talks about this over in 1 Corinthians 5.5. Listen to what he says. 
this guy had been committing incest with his stepmother. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, his death, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There is a sin that leads to death. Any sin you willfully, knowingly commit. Only God knows when you reach that point that He says, okay, that's it. I'm bringing you home. So we can't afford to willfully, knowingly sin at all, can we? You see, there are awful consequences to willful sin. Well, what does a Christian do then when he does sin? And we do sin. Well, 1 John 1, 9 tells us. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you as a Christian sin, you need to first repent. And repentance means to confess and forsake. You need to say, God, I blew it. I sinned. This was a sin. Confess. And then say, God, by Your grace, I don't want to do it again. I'm going to look to You for the strength and power not to do it. Then you claim His forgiveness. The devil wants you to walk around feeling guilty. God says, no, experience forgiveness. I have forgiven you. Walk in it. And then you need to surrender afresh. Your life to Jesus. Because let me tell you, when you willfully sin, you've taken back control of your life. You need to surrender again to His Lordship over your life. Now John's talking about a general disposition and lifestyle to commit, to resist sin and temptation, to deal with personal sin by repentance and claiming God's forgiveness and surrender. And a commitment to live victoriously in Christ. That's what he's talking about. Do you have a lifestyle, a disposition, a commitment in your life to resist sin and temptation? To deal with sin in a biblical way when you do sin. And to live the victorious, obedient Christian life. A person who can willfully, knowingly, consistently disobey God without remorse and regret denies his profession if he claims to be a Christian. You and I all know of movie stars that have come out and said, Oh, I'm a Christian now. And they continue to live in their immoral lifestyle. I remember several years ago, there was a man named Larry Flint. He was the uh, publisher of a pornographic magazine. It came out that he said he was a born-again Christian. Man, when I heard it, I said, great. I guess he's going to quit doing all those things. He didn't stop. He continued to publish his pornographic material, continued to live a simple lifestyle. Now, John says his lifestyle denies his profession. That if he had truly been born again, 
the Spirit of God within him would not have allowed him to continue to habitually, willfully, knowingly sin as a practice of his life. You pass this test? Can you honestly say that you consistently struggle in your life for victory over sin and temptation? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You that Your grace... We do welcome you, and I'm glad that you have taken the opportunity to listen to a sermon on our Internet. And I want you just to know that uh, everybody in the church is not like me. Uh, I have these fellows up here, our leadership team. Uh, This is Filiberto Medina, who is our Hispanic pastor. And our Hispanic congregation meets every Sunday evening at 6.30. This is Paul Kumar. He is our Minister of Community Connections. Uh, And to my left is Mark Baker who heads up our Reformers Unanimous Ministry, which is a Christian addiction recovery program that meets every Friday night at 7 o'clock. So if you live in the Mableton area, uh, and it doesn't matter what race you're from, it doesn't matter your cultural background, I want you to know you are welcome at Westside Church. This is where everybody is somebody and Jesus is Lord. Hope you'll join us soon. Thank you for being with us for this message. Each week, Dr. Stewart gives practical applications and ways to live out the Word of God. If you would like more information, please take a moment to view our website at wbcfamily.org. That's wbcfamily.org.